1: Straight ahead on the Insiders, he is one of the two Colorado Democrats running for president. He was also one of the last candidates to join this presidential race. He's a cancer survivor and he thinks he has the best healthcare plan, especially if you live in a smaller town. Senator Michael Bennett is here on his record, his hope for rural America and what could make education both better and more affordable. Plus, President Trump is reinstating the federal death penalty. What's it like to watch a convicted murderer die from electrocution? we will tell you this morning because I witnessed it ones. And in the Insider's Quick Six, we're just two days from the second presidential debate, we'll get a candidate's take on the importance of standing on that stage and the pressure for that breakout moment that the cable TV's always want. so Welcome to the Insider. So here's a question for you. Do you keep our healthcare system the way it is? Do you try a Medicare for all? What about a Medicare X? Colorado Senator Michael Bennett prefers that third option. It would increase federal premium subsidies, expand the number of people who can get them. He would increase payment rates for rural doctors and hospitals by 25 percent, allow the federal government to negotiate drug prices for Medicare and penalize drug makers who raise prices faster than the rate of inflation. Senator Bennett joins us now. Thanks, Thanks for, being for here. having me. Appreciate you being here. Uh, first Thanks of all... Thanks for reading my plan. I had to exactly. memorize it before I had I had to get you off all those no, things here. No, that's good. Hey, uh, first thing, obviously, when we talk about health, let's talk about yours. Yeah. You
2: uh, got
1: diagnosed with prostate cancer. It is a curable... Yeah. It's obviously scary to have, but it's a curable thing. How are
2: you? Nobody likes... I'm fine, and nobody needs to uh, be sympathetic for me. I, we caught it, and I'm fine now. And unfortunately though we live in a country where there are millions and millions of people that don't have access to primary care or insurance and if i weren't one of those people i'd be standing here today with cancer not knowing that i had it it's ridiculous how'd you know uh, because i got a screening you know just an annual screening from a physician and Everybody who's, you know, got a prostate out there, which is half the people watching your show, they should go get a screening if they haven't had one in a while.
1: Okay, can you talk about your health care plan here? Um, Bernie Sanders gets a lot of applause line for coming after this Medicare for All. You know, he's kind of the father of this push, as he'll talk about back in 16. A lot of your competitors here, some of them at least, have embraced this concept. That seems to be what a lot of people are getting fired uh, up
2: about. I totally understand Bernie's point of view from an ideological point of view. It's totally consistent with what he's believed since 1973, I would hate for the Democratic Party to follow him over this cliff because I don't think a plan that takes the choice away from 180 million Americans to decide for themselves and for their families whether they want private insurance or public insurance is the right way. There's no reason for us to do that. Why kick 22 million older Americans off Medicare Advantage? It doesn't make any sense.
1: What's what's the day-to-day way yours in the day-to-day day
2: way mine gets carried out is it's an option for people it's a public option and it starts out in rural areas i wrote it that way several years ago because i'm trying to pull back together the urban and rural divide that we have in this country around issues like health care and so there are a lot of places in my home state of colorado where there are rural counties where there's one insurer there are no insurers this says look we're going to start in those counties And over two years, we'll roll it out to the rest of the country. And the most important point is everyone gets to make a choice for themselves and for their family. Do I want to stay on the private insurance that I have if I have it? Or do I want this public option? As you know, there are millions of Americans who are making too much money to be on Medicaid, but they don't make enough money to afford private insurance. Those people need insurance. And... um, And I think we can give it to them, but I think a public option is a much better way of doing it than taking away choice from 180 million people.
1: When Barack Obama came to our state and campaigned in 07 and 08, he had laid out his plan for nearly universal coverage. He said families would save about $2,500, cost of health care would go down. That that hasn't really happened that way, so why not?
2: That's true, and it hasn't happened because we haven't required the federal government to negotiate drug prices. So, by the way, my plan doesn't just allow the federal government to do it. It requires that the federal government negotiate those prices. We still don't have the kind of transparency we need in terms of what health care actually costs in America. The best you can get these days is what you've been charged and by the time you finish fighting with your private insurance company you, you don't even know half the time what that is anymore we if, if if it were transparent what you know a hip surgery actually cost from hospital to hospital or doctor to doctor what knee surgery costs we could actually start to develop a market in america and that would drive prices down you know as long as we keep it opaque uh people can charge whatever they want so that was part of what we were supposed to be doing with the Affordable Care Act, but we never got far enough down that road. Uh, when
1: you you talked about your plan starts in the
2: rural areas, how do you define that? What's
1: rural? It, it's well, it's
2: uh, boy, I'm going to have to give you the. I'm going to have to come back to you on that, but it's. Is it based on population, or how it, do you look at it? It's based on population, but in addition to, no, but that's but that but, it's based on <laughs> it's, it's based on counties in this country that have one or zero insurers, and those tend to be rural areas. And
1: in our state, we have about, we have 99 counties, which you'll find out if you try to get to all of them here, uh, you know, and they're all, most of them are kind of squares here. Uh, Most of our state, about two thirds of it, frankly, is losing population. As you look at that, and I know you look at Colorado where you represent now and have had a track record of performing well on elections, you know, outside of the bigger metropolitan areas. How do you look how do you look at is it possible to turn that around yeah, we, or is that where things are going?
2: I think that we have to rebuild our rural economies. We're going to have to diversify our rural economies. In the meantime, we've got to make sure we preserve the employment that's there and we've got to preserve the systems that are there. So, you know, President Trump has had a 10-year or a or two-year assault on rural hospitals in America those places need to stay open if we're going to have... And by us
1: all by... By, by, by cut,
2: trying to cut Medicaid, trying to cut Medicare, trying to re- repeal the Affordable Care Act, You know, which which w- w- it was amazing to see how that politics changed because the now we had rural communities in America that were saying, please don't repeal it. In fact, that's the reason why, we, in the end, they were unsuccessful repealing it, was to save those rural hospitals because of the Medicaid expansion. So... And I think we have to figure out, as a former school superintendent, how to preserve our schools in our rural communities as well. Because once you don't have a school anymore, then it's hard for there to be economic development. It's hard for that community to grow. All
1: right. You just brought up schools here. We'll take a break. When we come back, we want to get into our schools Nationally, both K-12 through 12 and our public university systems, we're seeing smaller schools in our state close. Many students, when they want to go to college, they have to go deep into debt to actually do it. Senator will weigh in on both of those things next. Tens of thousands of dollars in college debt could disappear, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says. She says that if she is your next president, she will have the federal government wipe away nearly all of the money students owe on their debts from college. Presidential candidates have promised things like that. They've also talked about not making you pay tuition at community colleges, not paying tuition at four year universities. Obviously, we're talking about multi billion dollar promises. We're back with Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. All right, you actually worked in education. Yeah. Uh, superintendent in, uh, in Denver back in a couple of jobs ago. One job ago? Yeah, one job one ago. One job ago, yeah. All right, so how do you view this debate?
2: Uh, I think this debate is not focused on what our kids really need. I think what our, what our kids need in this country is universal access to preschool. What our kids need are to be able to go to a K-12 school that any senator who had every choice would send their kid. I really believe that's what the standard should be. I don't know why it should be lower than that. I think the kids that graduate from high school and go to college should be able to graduate debt-free if they work. And I believe that for the 70% of kids that don't go to college and don't get a college degree, we need to reorganize our high school system and our community college system to ensure that when they're graduating from high school, they have a set of skills that can actually allow them to earn a living wage, not just a minimum wage. That's where I would be focused. All I right. think, ironically, Bernie's plan to forgive all this college debt is one of the most regressive regressive proposals that any candidate has made. I wish preschool kids voted because maybe we'd be attending to their needs uh, in the proposals that we're making. All
1: right, so for those watching who are deep, deep in debt and they hear you talk about Senator Sanders here, what can you What I would say is that,
2: them? yeah, absolutely. What I would say is we have a crisis in terms of the amount of debt that people already have because of the student loans they've accrued. In my opinion, it's not their fault. In my opinion, it reflects a world where the taxpayers no longer support higher education, which they did when I was going to college, and, and the student loan program just lends into increases year after year after year. So the University of Iowa goes up by 4%, it just lends into that. That's not the student's fault. So what I would do is make it as easy as possible for them to pay back their loans by reducing the amount um, required based on some percentage of their income, so that they could then use cash flow for other things that they need to do, like so start a the, business, the payment, or Repair? or or just reduce the payment. And after a certain period of time, you know, of a longer period of time, um, say you're done. You know, you've you've done it for enough period of time. But I but I just I think the priorities are not in a place where we can help the most people in this country that need the most help. I also worry a lot that others will just say, well, why haven't you forgiven my mortgage? Or why haven't, you know, I just paid off my student loans. Why are you doing this? I think what we have to do is act in a way that, doesn't, that, 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 that treats people with respect and says, there is a measured way of dealing with the issue that you're, that you're confronting.
1: Uh, We have about 45 seconds left. Um, How do you view this? We've seen some teachers walk out, K through 12 teachers uh, nationwide. Um, We've heard Senator Harris come here and talk about paying teachers more. How do you view what we're paying our teachers? I I
2: think we're not paying our teachers enough to live on. We're not paying our teachers um, uh, as the professionals that they are. And a lot of that's because we owe this whole system to a time in America when we discriminated against women and said, you got two professional choices. One's being a teacher and one's being a nurse, you know, and we were discriminated against women back then. We have to change the way we pay people and we need to pay our teachers more. We're losing. 50% of the people from the profession in the first five years. Is that a
1: federal thing or should we do that statewide? I think, look,
2: 9% of the money we spend on K-12 education is coming from the federal government. I think it's unrealistic to expect that the federal government is going to make a long-term commitment that's going to make a difference in teachers' lives that won't be ripped away in another administration. Instead, I think we need the federal government to work with state and local governments to figure out how we're going to take what is a shared burden and... Make sure that we have another generation of teachers in this country. All right, if
1: you all hang tight, we'll have sure. you back here at the end Happy of the show to. for the quick six. Uh, part of running for president is math. Campaigns have to figure out what role the Iowa Democrats' new virtual caucus will play in all of this when they caucus in February. So when we come back, party chair Troy Price will be here to lay out the changes ahead that will make this next caucus a lot different than any of the ones in the past. Iowa Democratic Party officials are working on that virtual caucus plan addition for caucus night. It'll be the biggest change to the Iowa caucuses in nearly half a century. Now you'll remember 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton complained that the traditional system that's been this way for years, it required Iowans to show up on caucus night. It left too many people out of the process. So the party has made some big changes here. For the first time in this next caucus in 2020, registered Iowa Democrats can choose to essentially teleconference in remotely to take part in the caucus in the days leading up to caucus night and including caucus night. Iowa Democratic Party Chair Troy Price filled us in on what's ahead.
0: One of the criticisms of the Iowa caucuses that has been around since the beginning of the process is that you have to be in one spot at one time at 7 o'clock on a Monday in February. And that has led or meant that there are some people who just can't participate, single parents with child care issues, uh, people who work second shift, people with mobility and disability issues, people working and serving overseas, and others who just don't have the opportunity to be at their church basement or VFW hall. And so we wanted to create an opportunity uh, for those folks to participate. We've actually talked about this for years. And then uh, after the 2016 cycle, the DNC put forward some rules that said that we have to have that process. So we have been spending a lot of time over the last three years talking to various people, former uh, campaign staffers, party leaders, people from other states, uh, uh, looking at how we might be able to do this. Our goal was to make sure that we preserve the precinct caucuses, that that those community meetings where people come together and debate the future of our party and the future of our country and so we wanted to preserve that but we knew we had to create a system that would work for folks who just can't be there and so that's how we created the virtual caucus and we think that it's a going to be a great opportunity for those who cannot otherwise participate on caucus night it will give them the opportunity to do so and we use this entire process by the way uh to take a holistic look at our caucuses and how we can improve the process for our caucus goers, for caucus leadership, county chairs and campaigns. And so we wanted to make the process easier. And so one of the things that we're doing, we're going to be streamlining the realignment process. So what that means is uh, it used to be before that you'd go in to the caucus room, you would stand in your corner, we'd count, and then it was a free-for-all, everyone was free to move around. Uh, And then we'd count again after that. Here, if you go into your caucus room and if you're in a a viable group, if your candidate has 15%, your support's locked. That candidate cannot go down in support. Um, but you also can't move around the room at that point. But for those who are in non-viable groups, for those candidates that don't meet that 15% threshold, they'll then have the ability to come together with different uh, uh, non-viable groups and create a viable group, whether that's for a candidate or uncommitted, or they'll be able to go to one of the viable groups and we'll just add their number on top of it. And so we believe this is going to cut down on some of the time that it will take in the room. In addition to that, we think it's also going to make the, it will cut down on some of the criticisms that folks had uh, last cycle where people felt like there was an ability to game the system and stuff like that. This should uh, cut down on a lot of that and make the process a little more transparent and a lot quicker. So we're working closely with the DNC uh, and we're working closely with other states that are looking at doing this. Nevada's doing something similar to this. There are other sta- uh, caucus states who are looking at adding technology into the process. So we feel like we're on a, a good path. And the other thing, too, I'll say is that this is really exciting. This is the first time that uh, technology will be used at this level in a presidential selection contest. And, you know, that's why... And so we know there's a lot of pressure on us to get it right. And so that's why we're focused on uh, building out the best technology we can with the strongest uh, uh, security that we can, so that uh, this could potentially be a model on how uh, other folks look uh, to do voting in the future. You know, a lot of people describe this part of the country as flyover country and but here every four years we have an opportunity to help shape the national conversation And so my uh, call to Iowans is that they use this opportunity, you know, this is a, if folks are frustrated by what's happening in Washington, here's your opportunity to have your voice heard. These candidates want to hear from you, these candidates want to know what the issues are that are on the ground here. Uh, They want to have a conversation with you, and I've seen candidates already this cycle who have created policy based off uh, policy proposals that have been based off the conversations that have happened here.
1: All right, up next, one of Iowa's most infamous, most recent mass murders now has an execution date. It's all thanks to a change from the Trump administration. We'll look at that change, plus the time I watched another murderer executed in the electric chair. It was nicknamed the Yellow Mama in Alabama. We'll talk about that now. that iowa native in the orange there he now knows the day he's set to die it's january 15 2020 he's dustin lee honkin he was a drug kingpin he murdered fbi informants and one day in 93 he decided to kill the girlfriend of one of those informants he also killed her 10-year-old and six-year-old daughters Now, he's set to die because President Donald Trump is restoring the federal death penalty for the first time since 2003. Hawken is one of 62 prisoners on federal death row. 19 years ago, I watched a state execution in Alabama, and it was of this man. He is David Ray Duran. Two teens had parked in a car in a secluded area in Alabama. It was back in 1983. Duran and another man approached them. They had a gun. They tied these two teens up. They forced them into a trunk, drove them around for hours, eventually stopped, took them out, and shot them both. One of the teens died. Her date that night somehow survived despite getting shot. The court eventually sentenced Duran to death for his heinous actions back then now back then i was working in local television in montgomery and alabama used that for its executions that electric chair was nicknamed the yellow mama i got chosen to be a media witness for Duren's execution it was set for a minute past midnight on january 7 2000 so they hooked up durin he stared through a window at us i was in a room with some prison staff and family members of his victims then they carried out this electrical execution. Duran briefly clenched his fists at the time, then he released. He stopped breathing, and he was dead. Duran, late in life, had become a born-again Christian. He decided not to prolong his legal fight because he says it would not have been fair to the families involved. Alabama eventually got rid of the yellow mama in 2002 and uses lethal injection instead we come back, what Senator Bennett thinks of the federal death penalty, also the big debate ahead this week, and what would happen if he would have to debate his old boss. The Insider's Quick Six is up next. All right, time for the Insider's Quick Six with Senator Michael Bennett. Question one. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the president's reinstated the federal death penalty. Would you keep it? If you become president, no. Uh, question two: So debate Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. You go Wednesday. Wednesday. Um, will you directly challenge another candidate, like we saw with Harris and Biden and Castro and O'Rourke?
2: I think uh, there the distinctions I want to draw with this field include healthcare and immigration, and there are a whole bunch of people on that uh, on that on that night that have different views than I do. So I think it might be the whole field that I challenge.
1: All right, question three. Speaking of that whole field, you used to work for John Hickenlooper, right? That's true. You were his chief of staff when he was the mayor of Denver. Now you all are debating on separate nights here. But if you two would just somehow become the final two in this big field and you had to go head to head in a debate, what would that that be like?
2: I think it would be fascinating. Uh, We have had such different experiences since i worked for him. I sometimes say to people, it's not because he was such a terrible boss that I'm running against him. We just have different experiences. He's been governor, I've been a senator for 10 years, and uh, I think it would be highly entertaining, but I think highly unlikely that that's where we're gonna end up.
1: All right, Uh, question four. If you had to describe President Trump's presidency in one word, it would be what? Unpatriotic. Uh, Question five, this is kind of a personal one, but way back, uh, you dealt with dyslexia as a kid, right? That's true. Uh, it made things kind of tough in second grade, as you repeated there. Um, how did you? How do you overcome something like that, and what long-term impact does it have on the way you do your day-to-day? The
2: key, the, key, the key is having teachers that can recognize this kind of thing and intervene with you, and we don't have enough of those kinds of teachers in America today because of the way we've cut our budget. So I think about it all the time. All the kids in Denver Public Schools, my old district, 95,000 kids that didn't have the access to the same kind of, you know, access that I had, and that's something we have to change as a country. Every kid deserves a chance. We always
1: end with a prediction, so what do you have?
2: What's your My prediction? prediction is that within the next 10 years, a dreamer will be elected to Congress. Senator,
1: appreciate the Thanks fact. for having Thanks. me. Safe travels. Good to see you. Let's Thanks. stay connected.
2: Happy birthday to your son. Hey, thank you. We we'll
1: appreciate that. Uh, let's stay connected throughout the week. We'll see you next.